and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. Stabbing Westward is back. The band released their latest EP, Dead and Gone, their first new music in almost 19 years, and I speak with the band's lead singer, Christopher Hall. Christopher tells me just how long the EP took to make, why they decided to go the EP route instead of a full-length album, talk how we got involved in music, just the band's history, and as well as the band's drama back in the day. Chris, very interesting guy, and I've been a big fan of this band for over 25 years now. Hope you enjoy my interview. Last month when you uh, had to do your, uh, what was it, your son's uh, concert, preschool concert? <laughs> well, yeah, I, te- I, 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 teach, uh, I teach music at their preschool. Oh, okay. Yeah, That's so cool. during, during, during the summer, like um, a couple times a month, I'll go and uh, bring like different instruments, ukulele, acoustic guitar, sometimes trumpet, and um, we'll just run through a bunch of kids' songs and whatnot. And then they wanted to, I don't usually do it during the school year, but they wanted to do a, a Christmas music jam. So um, they'd scheduled it for that morning. I totally forgot. Um, so I, I had to go and sing a bunch of non-denominational you know, Rudolphs and Frosties and Santa Claus, you know, <laughs> type songs. Right. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So it's there's no fun. chance to test new material there, huh? <laughs> oh, no, no, nothing like that. They're all, they're all between three and five. Yeah. So, no. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it would fly, right? <laughs> I, I, I think even doing the Bruce Springsteen version of Santa Claus is coming to town versus the classic one was rock and roll enough for them. So. Right. Do, uh, do any of the parents know about you your background um no i mean they they know that i'm somebody but i don't think any of them actually know who (laughs) it's a it's a mandarin immersion preschool so most of them are from taiwan okay and i don't i don't stabbing made a big dent in taiwan i'm not sure right (laughs) yeah probably probably not a lot of bootleg cds out there (laughs) yeah yeah so the um yeah the, the ep is great i've been listening to it a lot um what was like the the process of making and how long did it take you guys? It's, it's, it's been a very long time. <laughs> it's been a very long time. Right. Yeah. Oh, uh, so when, when, God, I don't even know how many years ago, I'm, I'm guessing my kid is six and my dad died a few months before he was born. So about six years ago, my father passed away and um, I had to go back to Illinois. Well, I didn't have to, I, I went back to Illinois for his funeral and, um, Walter, who was the uh, the guy that I started stabbing Wester with back in high school, um, he still lived in Illinois at the time. And we had been estranged for 15 years since the band broke up. Um, some, you know, just nothing really horrible. It wasn't like necessarily bad blood. It was just sort of when the band broke up, everyone went, you know, went their separate ways. He moved to uh, the East Coast for a while and, and worked out there and we just lost touch and didn't really talk. And then uh, I had spent pretty much every day since the band had broken up working on my project, The Dreaming. Right. And and um, Walter showed up at my father's funeral, uh, which which is like a three hour drive from uh, Chicago where he lived. But it's also the town where he's from. So yeah. um, when, when I saw him at the funeral, I got like, oh, my God, you know, this is like he was literally the only person I knew there outside of my um my brothers and sisters and um you know we we hung out after the funeral and went out and drank and went to some of the clubs that we used to you know do stabbing westward shows at and we were both djs at these clubs and we were like 
you know, the Kings there or whatever. And then, um, it's all new kids going to college and stuff and they had no clue who these two old people were, but the owners did. They're like, Oh my God. So, you know, so we're treated VIP, but, um, it, it was, it was really cool because we got a chance to catch up and a lot of the stuff that had been bugging him, you know, we got to talk about, um, and, he said he really missed doing music and we ended up staying up to about four o'clock in the morning, just listening to, I had a bunch of tracks on my phone and he had, he had some stuff on his laptop that he'd been working on. And, um, we, we promised when we went home that we would exchange some music. Um, and we did that over the next couple of weeks. And most of that music became the, the final dreaming album. Um, and I think, at the time, we thought that was the best we were going to do. We were going to be able to write music together, but under the moniker, the dreaming, um, because we didn't know whether or not we had the rights to the name Stabbing Westward. Okay. Um, there, there was a lot of, lot of confusion. Um, no one in the band had spoken. When the band broke up, there was a lot of animosity at the time. Um, but as the, you know, the decade had, had gone by, I think we all kind of grew up and lived life and realized that a lot of the things that we were mad about weren't us. It was the system. It was management. It was the fact that the music industry was collapsing in 2001, thanks to Napster and the decline of record sales. You know, I mean, hundreds of bands were dropped the same year that we were dropped. It was like a, uh, a mass extinction of rock bands for the most part. And so as we looked back, we realized, you know what? It wasn't so much that we were dysfunctional. We, we did really well in the nineties, given, you know, who we were and what we did and whatnot. And um, I think everyone was able to look back and, and realize, you know, there's really not that many hard feelings. Um, so we, we, we did the Dreaming record. We toured as the Dreaming. And then um, Cold Waves, which is a, a festival in Chicago, um, asked us if we would play a uh, pre-festival party at a famous Chicago venue called The Double Door that was closing they were um they hadn't renewed their lease in this this you know club that had been there for since i was a kid was was closing its doors they wanted us to be one of the last shows there as stabbing westward and we were like oh i don't know i mean it could really stir up a hornet's nest with the imaginary lawyers that we were picturing that the (laughs) other guys the band had on staff i don't know why (laughs) i would think that um but yeah we were just like oh i'm sure someone's hovering near you know, Google waiting for something like that to happen. And then they said, um, you know, it's a charity event. Like, oh, you know what? Yeah, we'll come out. We'll do it as a charity event. It'll be really fun. And, um, you know, it'd be a good chance to, to play. So we got Mark, the, one of the guitar players at the, um, from, from Stabbing Westward. Right. And, um, yeah. And, uh, and Johnny, who had toured with Stabbing Westward, um, during the Darkest Days tour when Andy had broken his collarbone. We put that band together and we played the show and it went really well. It was like sold out the crowd. I thought that people wouldn't really care that much, you know, um, but people were just so into it. And as much as I liked playing the new songs I'd written in the dreaming and as much as I talked smack about the old songs and stabbing westward, once I started singing, I'm like, felt like putting on like a, a favorite leather jacket that you thought you'd lost. You know, it's just like, it was just a perfect fit. I'm like, oh man, I can remember every word. I can even remember the, the moves that I did with my hands and how I jumped into like all those stage moves, like from the a thousand shows that we did all came back. And it was like, oh, this is like 
pretty natural. So they invited us to do Cold Waves the next year on the main stage, and that was sort of what kicked it off. We're like, okay, if we do this, there's no looking back. We're going to see what happens if anyone, you know, gets mad. And we sort of reached out to the other guys in the band and said, do you guys want to do this? And everyone was um, everyone was uh, busy, you know, um, doing the stuff that they do. Um, Andy and Jim are both um, in L.A., but doing like like, you know, running businesses and stuff like that. So uh, we just went ahead and did it and everyone was, seemed to be pretty cool with it. And for about a year, year and a half, um, we toured and we would play, you know, not not long tours, mostly just three show weekends, a couple times a month just kind of covering the, the main markets of the country where we'd had some presence. And the whole time, Walter and I were still writing music, but the idea of releasing stabbing stuff was, we weren't quite sure. We thought we were still going to go back to the dreaming and put that out because we had to deal with Metropolis. Um, but we were definitely writing with the mentality of, you know, forget what the dreaming was in the past and let's be me and you again, like we were in the early days of the band. Um, and, and do what we do naturally. Um, so we did a song on the cold waves. They do a compilation every year that they sell for charity. And we did a song called home and you that was an outtake from the self-titled record in 2000. And it was a song we wrote three or four songs for that album that were, were deemed too heavy for the fluffy lightness of that record. They're too dark. And um, he played that for me one day. He's like, you know, they're looking for a song for Cold Waves. And I was going through the stockpile of old songs. I'm like, you have a stockpile of old songs? <laughs> and he's got like, because we did everything on his computer back in the day. He had he had the studio. Um, I didn't have a studio back then. And so um, he has all these songs that we had recorded. And that was one of them. And I'm like, I don't remember it at all. And he played it for me. I'm like, oh, my God, I like this song. I, I was mad that it wasn't on the record. So we re-recorded it. Try to stay true to the original, but with more modern tones and whatnot, and put it on the record. And everyone seemed to respond really well to it. So I thought, okay, well, let's play it live at Cold Waves and see how it goes. I said, do you guys want to hear a new song? And everyone cheered and went just absolutely crazy. Big sold out show. And then we start playing it. and Everyone's kind of nodding until like second line of the verse. And then I see heads start to look down at their phones and I start to see that that thing that you hate where everyone's face is kind of glowing blue and all you see is the top of their head. Like the entire audience is like, I don't know the song. I'm going to check in on my Facebook or whatever. And that's when I was like, fuck it. I don't want to do. I don't want to do new material. These people are coming to see the songs that they know, the heritage songs, you know, the legacy songs. And um, let's just let's just do that. Let's just give the crowd what they want. I don't want to be that band that forces new music on them. And, um, you know, refuses to play What Do I Have to Do or Save Yourself. You know, no, we're only going to play our new material. I don't I don't want to be that band ever. I know what people are coming to see, and I wanted to, like, give them that. I'm still proud of that stuff, and so that's what we'll do. Um, and then just every single show, people would come up and say, when are you going to put out a new record? When are you going to put out a new record? And I would laugh and say, you don't want to hear a new record. You just want to hear Save Yourself. And then, you know. I'd actually get into conversations with people and they go, no, we really want to hear new music. Your music touched my life and, you know, the things that you say are important to me and I, I want to hear more of what you have to say. And I've been listening to the dreaming and as much as I like it, I want to hear some stuff westward. And I was, I was trying to understand what that means. Like, what is the difference between 
the two bands? What, you know, was there something that clicked in my head when I wrote for one band that was different than the other band? And, um, I, I went back and listened to a bunch of stabbing stuff. And it's like, okay, there is a difference. There is something, a way that we approach things and, and did things that was slightly different than, I think when I was doing the dreaming, I was trying to improve on stabbing Lester. Like, oh, I'm a better songwriter. I can do this better. I can, you know, and it's like, well, maybe if we don't think that way and we just run on kind of pure instinct and wouldn't this be cool, that sort of mentality. And so uh, we started working on the songs. We had I had ideas already in my head, like lyrics and melodies, and we started putting you know the music together. But because of the distance, he was in Chicago for a long time, and I was in LA. And then um, he, he moved to Seattle recently and started like a whole new life in Seattle with a new job and stuff like that. And with all this like that the the long distance like balancing ideas back and forth and with both of us having like me having a family and him having a career it's like it's not like the old days where we would sit for six hours in a room and, and a day and work on the record for a year you know so it's it's taken a good two or three years of these 10 songs kind of bouncing around trying to figure out you know m- most of them are like three quarters done they just need a little bit of spit and polish and they'd be ready to go but uh the idea was let's do Instead of trying to bite off the whole, I would do like these <laughs> whiteboards, you know, with the erasable markers. Right. I would do like, I do like a whiteboard with each song and what each song needs. Okay. This song just needs a bridge and some guitar and maybe live drums instead of that. And then a mix. That's all this song needs. And this song needs, you know, it just, we need to decide between the three versions of the song, which one we like, or maybe, you know, I had each song had a whiteboard with this huge list and I'm like, yeah, this doesn't look like much if I could get everyone in a room for like a month, but <laughs> this is three years, you know, like looking at this world, like this is impossible. So I'm like, I said, what if we just do an EP? What if we do a three song EP and we pick out three and we just buckle down and we finish three. And then Walter told me that he just interviewed Trent Reznor like a week earlier and Trent had done a series of EPs that he then released as a whole album. And Trent's reasoning was when you release anything, single, an EP, an album, you get this massive spike in interest online. And then they wait for it, they wait for it, they get it, and then they consume it instantly. And then the spike dies and they want something else like the next day. And, um, the, and I just, I just experienced it. We just released our EP last Friday. And um, it was so much work getting it mixed and ready. And then it was I had to have it all finished before the holidays because everything shuts down in the holidays. So I had to have it turned into Spotify before the holidays started to be released January 3rd. So there's all this stress of, oh, is it done? Is it going to be up on time and stuff like that? And then it came out and I was sort of watching, you know, I, I did a couple of social media posts or whatever. And I was kind of watching the rollout and watching the the YouTube numbers go up and then reading the comments and they're like 96% positive or whatever. And uh, I got this like, you know, kind of big rush from it. And then the next morning it had pretty much died down to a trickle of comments. And I posted another social media comment, like I post to try and boost it back up. And, and it was weird. Like you just get this like crazy sugar rush and then it just kind of trickles down to nothing. And they're like, you know, oh, I wish it was a whole album. I'm like, well, thank God it wasn't a whole album because you would have devoured the whole thing in a night. 
after you know forever amount of work and at least this way i can spread it out over the course of a year and get a couple of sugar sugar buzzes off of it or whatever but yeah it's it's pretty weird i forget what your question was i'm sorry oh no, no, no. You, you answered it and then some but um how did the like dreaming fans like take you know the fact that you guys were releasing you know stabbing westward stuff I think dreaming fans were nothing but angry stabbing fans. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was actually when the dreaming first formed, the very, very first incarnation, the first touring incarnation of the dreaming had Jinx from Blackville Brides, uh, Brent, who went on to play with uh, Static X and Combi Christ um, in the band. And they were both um, kind of social media celebrities whatever that when when emo was a thing and the, the the androgynous boys with their long hair and eyeliner would go online and post sexy pictures and the the girls with the teased hair would you know post comments and stuff they were they were both those kind of things so we had this kind of weird emo chick following not based on the music or me but based on those two guys um and then when they went on to do their their other stuff then we kind of lost that kind of core fan base but the music also got a little bit better too or not better but different it was a bit it was a bit emo metal at the time but um yeah the, the music changed for the better at that point but um i think the majority of our fans were just stabbing fans and at a certain point during the dreaming we would play five or six stabbing songs during the show we sort of spread them out during the show almost like covers like a tribute band or something mm-hmm. the, the 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 one the the comments that make me annoyed and laughed the most are when dreaming fans will uh or stabbing fans who followed us through the dreaming will post oh this sounds just like the dreaming or it's just the dreaming rehashed or and and it's like i can't tell if they're insulting the music or just trying to show how clever they are or how much more into like like oh i know so much more about this band than you do if it's that sort of record store mentality or whatever um, but one one of the comments I got was, oh, Dead and Gone sounds, the song Dead and Gone sounds exactly like the stuff Chris was writing in the dreaming before Walter was in the band.
But all you have to do is read the album credits and you realize that Walter wrote all the music to that song and he wrote it before he was in the dreaming. It's like, what is wrong with you people? I would ne- I could never write anything that cool. That's not my style at all. Um, but it's, it's just funny. It's, it's funny to see people's reaction. I mean, 99% of it is positive and I look at those and they make me smile, but the negative ones are the ones that get in my head and I, I chew on them while I'm walking my dog and I come up with these like clever, angry troll responses and stuff like that. It's like, ah, always the five negative people. Yeah. It's, it's basically the, the, the jerk store comment and you want to get back to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, you, you guys, you had to do all the legwork for this EP. So it's probably, it's a far cry from like 25 years ago. You have no idea the legwork I'm doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we, I, I ordered um, actual physical CDs okay. for the EP, um, and I didn't think anyone – I thought, you know, we can sell them at shows. It will be something cool that you can sign at shows. Right. Um, and um, when you when you record an EP, especially because we made two videos for it, um, it costs a lot of money to make. Uh, we, can, we can record and mix pretty much for free in our house, but you have to pay for mastering. Uh, to make the videos was a lot of money. Um, we did, we did two videos for the EP, but you kind of really need a video to get people excited about the track. If you just put a track out, I, I, cause we put out the Evo Jesus thing, uh, a year ago and, yeah. you know, and it, it sold 300 vinyl and like 400 downloads. It wasn't that big of a deal. Um, granted this is new music, but I think making the video kind of brought it to life a little bit. But all that costs money. And I thought, well, if I can make a CD and then sell it like signed, then I can maybe recoup the money from making the video or something. And Walter, who works in radio, is like, dude, no one's going to buy a CD. Cars don't even have CD players anymore. Literally no one buys CDs. It's a waste of money. Like, I'll just get a couple hundred just to take to shows. It's something you can stick in your suitcase and sell at the merch booth, you know. He's like, fine, whatever. And then I call the CD guy, and he's like, well, for the cost of 200 you know, for for just like a little bit more money, you can get 500. They're so cheap these days that, you know, you can just bump it up to, you know, it's like you can almost get it to like a buck a CD, buck 50 a CD if you go to 500. I'm like, oh, what the fuck am I going to do with 500 CDs? It's going to sit in my garage. Yeah. I still have etched in blood dreaming CDs in my garage taking up space. <laughs> He's like, no, no. The, the guy at the, the CD shop is like, no, people will buy CDs. Trust me. I'm like, well, of course you're going to say that. You Sell CDs for a living. That's what you do. And Walter's like, oh man, I wouldn't waste your money. So I, he calls me a couple yesterday and he goes, the CDs are done. Can you come pick them up? I'm like, okay, I'll be right over. I go in and pick them up and I'm complaining. It's, it's there. Um, we got the, like an album cover type sleeve. So it's like a cardboard album cover as opposed to the plastic jewel case, which are just dead weight in my opinion. Um, just something to break. Um, so it was a much smaller box. Uh, when you get the jewel cases, it's like, 500 would be five gigantic boxes. Um, so I was pretty pleased at the size of the box, but it was really heavy. Um, I take it home. I'm like, fuck it. I'm just going to post it on our website and, you know, see if I can sell some of them before the show on Saturday. And then I'll try and sell some at the show on Saturday. And then we'll just take them to every show after that. Or maybe I can like give them away at VIP events or something like that. So I posted a picture of it on our website. Um, and, um, I posted it on Facebook and then I posted a picture of it on Instagram and then I went on with my life and I, I picked up my kids. So this is like at three in the afternoon. I picked up my kids from school. I made dinner. I did all this. And then at night last night I went and I sat down at my computer at like 1030 
and we had sold 320. Wow. And then I woke up this morning and uh, we're down to 22. So we've sold 478. Wow. And so now I'm looking at this box of CDs and I'm going, oh, so now I have to put each one of them in an envelope <laughs> and, and address it right. and then take it to the post office. <laughs> what the fuck? What did I do? Yeah. <laughs> so I've spent this afternoon going, oh, okay, I have to find a thermal, a thermal printer that can print postage. Yeah. And the address label, and I have to buy labels, and I had a Amazon little six by six inch boxes to put them in. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to go to the post office. That's a day that I'm going to lose in my life. So uh, then I'm like, I'm the goddamn singer. Why am I doing this? Why don't I have an intern or a drummer or somebody doing this? Why? But yeah. it's what we do. It's how we roll. So yeah, yeah. Careful so, what you wish for. Exactly. Too bad your kids aren't older and have them do the legwork. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, when we were in the dreaming, we would um, we would take orders online and we would have boxes of CDs in the van and we would um, the CD cases, the CDs and the artwork were all in different boxes. We would assemble a CD, sign it, put it in an envelope. Someone would write the address on the envelope as we're driving in the van to the next gig. We'd shove them in a garbage bag, and as we drove through a small town, we would stop at the post office <laughs> with a garbage bag of envelopes and just go, okay. It would be like 45 minutes. We'd stand there for 45 minutes and, you know, go to three tellers and kind of spread it out or whatever. And we would do that the whole time we were on tour just to make enough money to pay for gas. But right. I don't really need to do that anymore. <laughs> no, <laughs> I hope not. Right. <laughs> but the video is paid for, so that's cool. Yeah. Like, how much does a video go for these days? I can't tell you because the director who did it um, right. just won an award for video of the year in Revolver Magazine for the Three Teeth oh. video. Okay. So, yeah, he, uh, I think it's a, he did the Three Teeth video, um, the president one. I can't remember the name of it, but it, it won like a bunch of video awards for best metal video and stuff like that. But he, um, he's a fan of the band. So okay. he cut me, cut me an amazing deal. Oh, an nice. amazing deal. So I can't really talk about it. So oh, Vincente oh. from Industrial Films is my absolute hero. Um, it was still more money than I can afford, but it was like a quarter of what he would normally charge. So right, and super has, grateful. Okay, and the Dead and Gone video is on YouTube. Check it out, everybody. It's yeah, super- yeah. And then the second video is coming out uh, tomorrow or Saturday. Crawl. Oh, okay, cool. cool. Yeah, shot crawl in the the last four hours. Uh, of the time that we had the space, we went ahead and shot crawl. Oh, nice. You got to be efficient these days. You know, take it. Dude, advantage. yeah. We're like ninjas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I guess going back a few years, I, I discovered you guys you know, in college shows a long time ago. I guess, you know, 94, I was working at the college radio station up in Buffalo. Oh, right on. And I was, you know, doing the sports updates. And the DJ who the show was working on played a couple songs off of On God. And it really, you know, dug control. So every time I oh, would do control, this, yeah. Yeah. So every time I would do, you know, my sports update, which was like once a show for him, I made sure that he played control after my update. So it was right. like, yeah. So it was, it became a fan, you know. Your theme song. Exactly.
I like that song. We don't play that one live. That'd be a good one. I forgot about that one. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um. So going even further back, like, how did you get involved in music? Like, who were some of your influences? Uh, I was involved with music from the time I was five. Um, it's all I've ever done. Um, I started playing trumpet and singing when I was a little kid. Um, did like local theater. Um, played uh, when I was in like elementary school. I was playing in the junior high band. Um, when I was in high school, I was playing in the college band for like the local community college. Um, I, I was always just what I did. I was a I was a trumpet player. I played orchestra and marching band and you know, all that, all that stuff. Um, and then my rock career happened <laughs> when I went to band camp <laughs> and, um, uh, that's when I met Walter, Walter, I went to band camp at Western Illinois university and Walter lived in that town, but he also went to band camp and, um, they have a, have a talent show at band camp. And, um, I was way too shy at the time to, to do anything at, at the talent night. I was just, just there to be a band nerd and uh but him and a couple of his friends um got up and played um like a who song a police song and i can't like my generation uh uh roxanne they played like three you know rock songs and um it was awful but it was really fun to watch walter played guitar and um and it was really cool and all the girls went really crazy and i'm like how is that guy getting girls to go crazy when I'm the first chair trumpet player? You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm the man. Right. <laughs> um, and, um, and, um, it was fun. We, we became, we kind of competed for a girl, but we became friends. And I realized that I lived about 25, 30 miles away. I went to a tiny school, um, in a different County than him, but it wasn't that far away. And the town that he lived in was where my grandparents lived. So I was able to go see him and hang out, uh, you know, a couple times a month on the weekends and stuff. And, um, he talked me into, into forming a band, you know, we're in high school, but it was, it was cool. We would like get together at his house and jam and we had a terrible drummer and I was playing the bass guitar and I had no idea how to do it. And he would teach me each song at a time. It's like, okay, this is day tripper. This is, you know, uh, my generation. This is, should I stay or should I go? You know, we were just learning like weird, random, you know, early eighties rock songs. And, uh, that's kind of how it started. And then, a bigger band in that town uh stole me as a bass player for their band and then eventually Walter joined that band playing guitar and then we got frustrated that they wouldn't let us write songs um and we were really into this whole uh wax tracks ministry front 242 thing right. that was going on back then and so we decided we'd take all the money we raised that summer and buy a drum machine a keyboard and a four track cassette recorder and we were going to write our own music and that was the genesis of stabbing westward so we were writing pretty cheesy early ministry um with sympathy era type electronic pop songs kind of inspired by the cure um, and like a little sisters of mercy and stuff like that like i would put a chorus pedal on my bass guitar and lots of reverb on the drum machine stuff like that but um we, we were real serious about it. Like, uh, the, the bands, I was in a couple of bands at that point. The bands we were in were playing, you know, every weekend, pretty big shows at like the local bars at the, you know, for the university or whatever. But, um, he and I would spend all day on our days off working on this weird little music that, uh, we would play on the college radio station. He was a DJ 
at the station and he would play it. And, um, we took it, we made a cassette, we took it up to Chicago one weekend and gave it to, uh, Frankie at Wax Tracks, who was, uh, the singer for Thrill Call Cult. He worked behind the counter at Wax Tracks and, um, they sold local music in cassettes in the, in the glass display counter. Um, if, if they felt it was good enough to sell or whatever. And, um, he played it in the store at Wax Trans, which completely blew our mind. Right. If I, you know, they didn't have cell phones with, you know, video, but I would totally videotape that moment. Um, and he's like, this is really good. It's, you know, a little, a little, uh, what was the word you say? Um, not cliche, but derivative of, you know, what we're doing, what Wax Tracks is doing, but you know, it's good, you know, good, good vocals and, and the music's cool. Um, and he, you know, they, that was the Iwo Jesus cassette and then we ended up selling, I think 50 copies of it or something. Right. Not, a, not a big deal, but it was something. And that was kind of the start for us. So we were always doing other bands that made more money and played more gigs, but we always had this love thing, this, you know, music that we loved that we were secretly working on. And then, the uh I think the thing that really clicked is when when Nine Inch Nails played Woodstock and they covered themselves in mud right. and everyone was talking about it. No one could stop talking about it. It was like the buzz of the music industry. And I think all the presidents of all the labels said, go find us one of those, you know, because grunge was dying at that point. It was kind of post Nirvana and um Stone Temple Pilots and all, you know, I think, I think grunge had turned into candle box at that point, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, right. so, so they were looking for the next thing, even though Nine Inch Nails had, you know, peaked with Pretty Hate Machine five years earlier, but, um, they were all looking for that. And so we just happened to be the one kind of big unsigned, um, industrial band in Chicago at the time. And, uh, we just happened to be right place, right time. Happened to know a guy that knew a guy that knew a lawyer that was, you know, and then it just, it just all kind of tripped into place. It was so many random pieces of fate that made it happen. But yeah, I think it's because we just never gave up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people are glad that you guys didn't because you I was, to... I was glad. Yeah, I'm sure you were. Yeah. Then so how um how long did the guys take you to write the Young God album? Um, half of the album was already written. Right. So that, that the half that Walter and I had written, uh, Lies, Violent Mood Swings, uh, Can't Happen Here. I can't think of the record off the top of my head. Um, I, I think five out of the five out of the ten songs or four out of the ten songs uh were written. Um, and then the the year before that, two years before that, I toured with a band called Die Warsaw. Right. Another Chicago industrial band. I was, uh, I played keyboards and percussion for them. And the drummer was Chris Frenna from Nine Inch Nails. And, um, Chris and I got along really well on the tour. And, um, when the tour was over, I said, Hey, we're, you know, going to be playing some, some local shows or whatever. You know, if you're hanging out in the city and got nothing to do, you know, you want to, play with us and and we ended up recording our demos with chris and chris introduced us to um rich patrick the guitar player from nin who was starting the band filter at the time 
Okay. And and his partner and filter was a guy named Stuart Zeckman. And we were at all sit in Jello Biafra's girlfriend's attic where <laughs> Rich lived above Jello Biafra's girlfriend in the same house. And we would sit in Rich's house, in Rich's room and like smoke weed or drop acid or do whatever and talk and get yelled at by Jello Biafra for being too loud, which is one of the most bizarre things in the world. And um, we all became really good friends. And then Rich took a hiatus from the filter thing to do something, I think to go back and play with Nin. And Stuart was left behind in Chicago with nothing to do. And I said, hey, you know, you want to write with us? And so then we he started playing with us and writing with us. And then we got offered a record deal. And he had to sort of decide, you know, which band to go with. And we had a deal sort of sitting on the table and Rich was um, not at that point yet. And so he jumped on with us and um, he was, he was the driving. I mean, in spite of what Walter and I had already accomplished, Stuart was the driving force behind Ungod. Um, the sound of the record, the, 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 the whole sort of overall tone changed dramatically and i don't know if it changed it just grew like he just added a depth to it that we'd never had he was just such a, a talented guitarist and bass player that it added this like just huge dimension it also turned us into much more of a guitar rock band than we had been um but that was that was uh that's when the ungodra and that happened really fast he and i wrote um the song on god uh lost throw control nothing we wrote those in six months, like really fast. And then Red on White was something he'd already had written before that he wanted he wanted me to sing. Um, so so that half of the yeah, so six those six um, he and I wrote. And uh, yeah, that was really fast, and the whole thing kind of went down fast. And then we ended up landing John Fryer to produce that record, who was like one of my heroes. He did pretty hate machine but that's not why i liked it he did cocteau twins and oh, leather yeah. rockets and this mortal coil and he did all the 4ad early 4ad stuff and um as heavy as the band wanted to be i wanted to be more 4ad i wanted to have more of that softer for lack of a word feminine kind of quality i didn't want it to be all macho testosterone right. you know industrial music i wanted to have a, a softer side and i thought john could could find that balance and I think he did. Was there like a lot of like tension between you guys trying to get a, a good balance between the two? No, I don't think so. Okay, that's no. good. Yeah, yeah, I think everyone was 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 pretty down with what was. I think musically everyone was pretty. I, I think the only tension that was really in the band was um, Walter and Stewart because because okay. Walter. Walter and I had always been the band and Walter was the main music writer in those days. Well, no, not in those days. Throughout the, the history of the band, Walter has been, you know, the main music writer. Um, but during that time, Stuart was his, you know, not competitor, but he was writing as well. So there was, I don't think there's so much a competition, but there was, you know, it was there. And then after Stuart left the band, Andy joined the band as a drummer, but he was also um, a really strong songwriter who who once again changed the DNA of the band by coming in and uh, giving us, what do I have to do? Sometimes it hurts haunting me, um, crushing 
crushing me, desperate now. He he wrote a, um, a lot of those uh, newer sounding, you know, uh, songs on Wither and Darkest Days that once again changed the, the trajectory of the band and once again created another. I, I think it's what made the band strong is having three, you know, really strong writers in the band as opposed to, you know, one or two guys where it, it can get sort of um, redundant after a while. If you listen to a band with only one writer after, you know, like a John Fogarty, after a while you can start to hear you know, okay, that's his, that's his system. Uh, um, uh, Nickelback, <laughs> good example. Yeah. It's like a, it's like great song. Don't think you should put it on every song on every album, but you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's what gave us a lot of our depth through the, the span of the band was having so many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. Was there like competition to get your song on, on each album? Um, at first, no. Okay. At first, when there was like when we got to ten songs and they were all good, we're like, wow, I thank God we got ten songs because, okay. yeah, coming up with ten songs is a lot harder than people think it is. Um, I think by the time Darkest Days came around, um, yes, I don't think that record ever should have been sixteen songs long. <laughs> I think yeah. it should have been ten or maybe twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there was like competition to get your ideas on the record, and then um, sort of a refusal to not have your song on the record so the record just got longer and longer and longer and then by the time we got to the last album the 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 direction of the band had changed so dramatically that um some people were pushing it really far to the pop side and um others were trying to hang on to what our original sound had been and then you throw in the manager who wants us to basically become the Goo Goo Dolls doing the soundtrack to City of Angels and a producer that she hired that no one knew simply because, you know, he would be able to sort of manage the situation in the way that she wanted. And it, it became untenable. Like, like, you know, yeah, it was awful. So that, that's, you could literally hear it falling apart on that last album. Like, you could hear like how the band split into two different directions and yeah, that was rough. Right. Yeah. And you know, speaking of that album, like, uh, so far away, it's my favorite song. I love that song. By That's you a great song. It's a yeah. great song. We play that live. It's, it's one of the two or three off that record that are good.
And it's funny because I was on my honeymoon in Hawaii and I heard that on the radio. You know, obviously back then, you know, you couldn't, you know, rewind the song on the radio or right. or find out who played it. So it sounded they played like... played our song in Hawaii? Uh, Hawaii, yep, exactly. Oh, that's awesome. I, never, yeah. I, never, I never heard it in Hawaii. That's cool. Yeah, it was awesome. So then um, I, you know, I had to play the whole song and I knew it was you, but wanted to make sure. But of course, the DJ at that time didn't say who it was so so i got home from the honeymoon immediately went to the record store said i mean and i asked like i know the song's so far away don't know it might be stepping westward he's like okay let me see if i can find the cd sure enough it was got it like you said it's (laughs) it's the tug of war between you know yeah where it wants to go but uh there, there are some you know really good songs on that album though i i think i think so far away was a good song yeah it it was better as a demo. It was darker. The way we play it live is how it's supposed to sound. Um, the, the, the guitar player, Mark, who, um, was on the, the Darkest Days record and on the Wither tour, um, he actually quit or got fired, um, kind of both right. during the process, process of that because he was trying to rebel against this, this transformation. Um, and, uh, um, 
the guitar player that got hired in had been in um a band that had failed but had been managed by our manager and um he uh his favorite bands were like um london suede and oasis right and like he was he was one of these guys that just loved everything british okay. but not but not the cure none of the cool like not Bauhaus, none of the cool british stuff but like you know uh mick ronson and like so it's like you know yeah okay good stuff but not yeah. what we do you know it's not what we do we're like a heavy dark band and so there's like um he just added like these cheese ball riffs and mm-hmm. um and it's just like oh god but uh that one survived i thought i thought wasted was pretty good yeah um, almost. the dem- the demo of wasted was way better i i'm kind of pushing walter to dig up the demos of that record and release like an ep of the best demos um television i thought was a good song that that almost didn't make it on the record but we fought tooth and nail for it um yeah, that was pretty much it for me. <laughs> I thought the only thing was a good <laughs> song that didn't sound like Stabbing Westward, but was a good sort of song. I don't know. I can't listen to it. Oh, when I hear when I hear perfect, like literally my butt puckers up and like, why did I sing that? Why would I ever? Yeah, I take no responsibility for that song. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I guess you just you just play the good ones now and just, you know. That which is which is totally fine, but um, well, I, I think that time 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 decides which songs are honest and which ones aren't. Right. I, mean, I can go back and listen to my favorite albums of other bands and songs that I thought were okay before. I'm like, oh, that's awful. I can't. I skip right over it. Thank God for Spotify where you can make a playlist. But yeah, the the, the really great songs on um, you know stand the test of time. Yeah. And yeah, and that album's not even on Spotify, so I guess you're lucky. <laughs> I know. People keep complaining about it. I'm like, why are you complaining about it? Maybe we'll do like a, a live cover of So Far Away and then we can post it on Spotify now that we have a Spotify account for yeah. the music. So yeah, we could do that. Yeah, absolutely. When you were recording that album, did you kind of know that it was the end of the band? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, I was kicked out of the studio and the door was locked at one point. Wow. Yeah, so I was trying to go in there and fight for something, and um, so the Walter went in and played guitar on one of his own songs um, because they were not using the main guitar part for the song, and he went in and tracked guitar on a Saturday morning with the engineer instead of the producer, and Walter was sent home, and the engineer was fired because he had undermined the producer. The producer had decided that it was his album, and it was his masterpiece, and, you know, the band was wrecking it. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Oh, whatever, dude. Yeah. Um, How's that what? career going? <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't Bob Rock supposed to produce that record? Bob Rock was supposed to produce that record, yes. Yeah. Who, you know, that would, in, in Hawaii, which would have been awesome. Yeah. He, would have, he was, you know, great producer and the Paolas as well. You know, fantastic art yep. artist. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But um, when's the next EP coming out? Do you have any idea yet? Yeah, we do. Um, we were kind of waiting for, we knew how far we wanted to space them out, but we were waiting for, um, sort of, a an anchor. And, um, we're going to do a big, uh, goth industrial festival in Philly on May 1st called Dracula's Ball. Oh, nice. And, um, it's a really big event and, um, we're going to shoot for that. It's nice to have an event to shoot for. Okay. It has to be done before this. So yeah. now we have. To you know, we already know what songs are going to be on each of the three 
EPs. Um, so now we just have to hone in on those three, get them done. And then the, we're going to do, I think hopefully we're going to do cold waves in the fall. And that's like September, mid September. And that's going to be the third EP. And then, um, once those are out, then I'm going to bundle them together with as many songs as I can fit on a vinyl. Right. Probably two, two or three more. If we do three, three songs, then I'll probably do two songs or three songs. If I can fit 12 songs on, on a vinyl, I will. Um, and then release the whole album as a, a vinyl. Okay. That's great. And yeah. I'll, I'll only make, I'll only make a hundred copies because no one buys vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, and you'll have to ship them. It'll be a pain in the ass. <laughs> no, I'm just, yeah, exactly. No, just, yeah. Yeah, just just don't make cassette tapes because I don't see a revival in those anytime soon. You know what? I was in my um, I was looking for the Christmas decorations the other day in the garage uh, in November, and I pulled out a box, and I'm like, "What's in here?" And inside the box was a cardboard box in the shape of I thought maybe CDs, but it was smaller. I'm like, "What is this?" And I open it, and it's um a box full of self-titled cassettes. <laughs> like, oh, I wonder if I could sell those for a dollar. Yeah. Um, and and then I have ten ungod mini discs unopened. Oh wow! But yeah, they're the mini discs versions of ungod. I'm like, that's got to be worth something, right? Yeah. Just for souvenir sake, I don't know. Exactly. Put them on eBay, see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Because like, I just get tired of like my office is is just so cluttered with crap. I want to get rid of it, especially now that I have to package 500 CDs yeah. and find a place for a label maker. God. <laughs> Start, I feel like I'm starting a record label. <laughs> exactly. One man operation. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Um, any plans to come back to New York on tour? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, Howard Stern's been asking us to come out oh, and cool. do his show. And we're, we're, it's like he asked us, he made a big deal about it, talked about it on his show. We're like, yes. And we're like actually pricing tickets. And then his, his producer's like, oh, the, you know, the holidays are, around the corner so we're gonna so okay so let us know but can you let us know like more than a week in advance because <laughs> we don't have a label that's gonna buy us first class tickets in the day of so we're gonna have to find some flights across the country on coach so give us a heads up um so we we're actually hoping they'd give us enough of a heads up that we could book a show and do a show that night um if not then uh we're probably gonna try and play the city around may when we go to um when we play Philly, we'll probably try and jump up that weekend and play a show. Oh, awesome. Okay, that'd be great. Yeah, so, yeah but we'll definitely be back. It's one of our, our five major markets. So it's like yeah. Chicago, New York, L.A., right. um, San Antonio, Dallas, oddly enough. And then, um, that's I guess that's it, Seattle. Right. Yeah, because the last few times you've been to New York, I've been out of town. So. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll, yeah, it's we'll, okay. We'll, we'll coordinate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, last question. Do you remember where you were the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? Um, yes, I was driving to Fargo, South Dakota on vacation. Um, not that big of a story. Um, but the first time we saw, the first time that the Nothing video was going to be shown on 120 Minutes, uh, yes. we, were in a, we were in a van. We we're actually in a hotel shuttle bus that we had purchased from Drama Rama, and um, and um, we were driving through like Nebraska or Kansas or somewhere on the way to somewhere else, uh, following Front Two Four Two. We're on the Front Two Four Two tour, okay. and um, 
and um, we knew it was going to be played on 120 minutes, but we didn't know what time. And so we stopped at a truck stop, and um, the guys were watching Die Hard or something. Yeah. <laughs> Can't remember, but it was like a bunch of truckers watching a movie on the giant TV that's in the trucker lounge. And we came in and we're like, um, <laughs> can, can we turn the channel for MTV? They're like, what? We're watching Die Hard. Yeah, but they're going to play our video and we want to see our video. And, um, they're like, you know, okay. And so we, we, we flip it over and nothing, nothing, nothing. And they're like, start yelling at us and booing and stuff. So we, we flip it back. And then, um, my tour manager gets an idea and he, he, gets out his calling card because um, he had a, no cell phones. He had a calling card. He gets on the, the little phone and he calls his girlfriend back in Chicago. And this is costing like $2 a minute or whatever. And he's like sitting on the phone and um, he's like going, okay, so tell us when, you know, when it starts and we'll flip it over. And it was like 40 minutes later and right. Die Hard was over and all the guys and all the trucker guys had gone to take a shower and go crawl into their you know, Chuck can go to sleep, whatever. And she goes, okay, okay, let's go. And so we flipped it, you know, flipped the channel over and, and there it was. And uh, I think that was like a $110 phone call or something absurd. He had to keep getting calling cards and like putting in new numbers, like the 12 digit number. But yeah, that was, that was pretty exciting. Yeah. I, I got, I got to wear a dress. I, that's, and that was like, I hadn't seen it. So I'm like, oh, I'm really glad the truckers left. I, I'm wearing a dress in the video. That's, that's awesome. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, you wouldn't have made that truck stop alive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Christopher, this was, this was great. I really appreciate it. Dead and Gone uh, is out now. Everyone listen to it. It's fantastic. And, uh, hopefully I'll see you in New York. Yeah, I hope so too. That'll be fun. And a special thanks to Christopher for joining me today. Go check out the band's EP, Dead and Gone. It's on all the streaming sites. If you want to follow them on Twitter, they're at stabbingwestward. Their website is stabbingwestward.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at the first Noel 19 Be sure to like the page of Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to the iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and view the show. Don't have iTunes, not a problem. Show's on SoundCloud, it's on Podbean. Go to livingmyyouth.threadless.com for all your merchandise. A new episode comes in every Wednesday, and we'll see you next week.